0: Today and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australian infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. In this episode, Janice and I spoke with the New South Wales Productivity Commissioner, Peter Uckerstrup, about igniting a productivity boom out of COVID, the way infrastructure is used and paid for, and how the Productivity Commission's white paper can help drive reform. Janice and I really enjoyed having Peter on the show. We hope you enjoy it too. Uh, so, Peter Alcastrout, thank you for joining us on Inside Infrastructure. I wondered if you might kick off by telling us uh, who you are and what you do.
1: Great. Look, thanks very much, Adrian uh, and Janice. And the um, really appreciate the opportunity to say a few words about the New South Wales Productivity Commission, but also to thank uh, Infrastructure Partnerships Australia for the leadership role you've taken on a number of policy initiatives uh, around infrastructure. So it's a real pleasure to be here, uh, Adrian. Um, the New South Wales Productivity Commission was set up about three years ago, um, well before uh, any pandemics or anything like that. Uh, the reason it was set up was because the um, Commonwealth had done most of the heavy lifting on productivity. The Commonwealth had, um, for example, to the dollar, they had reduced tariffs, uh, national competition policy, etc. Uh, and the Federal Productivity Commission produced a paper called Shifting the Dial, which said, look, there's a lot of um, initiatives which the states could be doing. Um, and that was a real challenge to the states. And so as a result, um, the New South Wales Treasurer, Treasurer Perrottet, established our Productivity Commission, which is a very small outfit, uh, and we um, do more smaller initiatives rather than the really big one-offs that the Federal Productivity Mm -hmm. Commission does. So the Federal Productivity Commission might do a a very well-researched document on superannuation, which would take a a year and a half and would have groundbreaking recommendations, very structural recommendations. Whereas uh, our uh, New South Wales Productivity Commission is more based on the smaller, um, easier to implement uh, initiatives.
0: I'm going to come come back to that because some of them aren't so easy, right? Some of them are challenging (laughs) as well. Yes, yes. Um, yes. But um, before we get into the Productivity Commission, I thought we might just explore a little bit about who you are and how you arrived at being the New South Wales Productivity Commissioner. The the first question has to be, what is the correct pronunciation of your surname? Because I've heard half a dozen different attempts
1: at it. Well, it's it, whatever is in the eye of the speaker, I answer <laughs> to anything. Um, the most common one is straat." When I grew up, I uh, couldn't speak English uh, at the age of four, and we pronounced it as achterstraat. But when we, when I learned English at four years of age, it sort of changed to straat."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So, so, softening or hardening the CH. Is it yes,
1: yes, precisely, yes.
3: And what is the surname's genesis? Where, where is it from? Uh, it's,
1: it's from Holland originally. Mm. Uh, and um, if you really want to know the genesis, uh, in 1813, uh, an event happened in Holland which caused everybody to have a unique identifier. Mm. Up until 1813, everyone was, was uh, their surname was daughter of or son of. So, and I've we've traced our family back to 1616 and you've asked for the genesis, Janice, so you have to listen to this. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> um, originally you had Klaas Willemson and then his son mm. was Peter Klaasson and his mm. son was then Johann Peterson and so everything was son of. Uh, then in 1813, everybody was required to have a unique identifier uh, and that was because... Um, uh, a gentleman from France came to the country, Napoleon, uh, and wanted to know who, who lived there. And so people were all given names. Um, and if you were from the Lane, then your surname was Van der Laan. Uh, mm. If you were a, a farmer, your surname was Boer. Apparently, my great great grandfather wasn't too keen on giving his surname. Uh, and they said, um, what, what sort of job do you have? He wouldn't answer. They said, uh, What town are you from? Because I'm not going to answer. Anyway, then they said, now, where do you live? He said, I live at 53 Achterstraat. And Achterstraat oh. is the name of the street he lived in, Achter being back and straat being street, back street. And so uh, his, his name then was, became Backstreet. And um, where most of my uh, family, when they came out on the boat uh, in the early 50s, most of the people from Holland anglicised their names. So the waka became wage makers, the wagon makers, the boers became farmers, etc. Uh, my father um, insisted that we continue to be called Actostrat, not right. Backstreet. So it
3: was so an act of a- protest, it was, it was a sort of. A- <laughs> Philosophical kind of small government. <laughs> <kind> well, of, <laughs> well I think you're drawing
1: a long bow there.
0: I just like that. Slightly, there's, there's clearly a genetic rebelliousness.
3: Yeah, I
1: know. <laughs> my, no, 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 no. Please don't go. There. I'm very, very, very
3: compliant. Does that mean your first language was Dutch? At, at, originally, yes. Right.
0: Yeah, and and, and and so you said you came when you came to Australia when no, you were a no, child, I was, um,
1: you... no, I was no, I was. Uh, fully imported parts but local assembly and so I was <laughs> I was born and then after a little while uh, we went back, my mother took the, my sister and I back to Holland uh, and we stayed there for some time and then when I returned back at the age of four I was fluent in Dutch hmm. but um, had yeah. to start relearning English
0: Do you still, you still speak Dutch? Or Lemme, you, Lemme <laughs> Okay Yeah um, Amazing! I, yeah, that's good. I, I had no idea that that was the meeting. Mm. With Arthur Strutt.
1: Right. Um, it's a secret, not, so don't tell anybody.
0: Yeah, we, <laughs> it's just it's just the three of us. It's fine. So, sure. so um, we've got we've got four-year-old Peter Arthur Strutt who um, um, at that stage is learning English, and then the only other bit we know is that you're now the New South Wales Productivity Commission. So there's a journey mm. in between there. How did you go from the four-year-old learning English to Um, to where you are today?
1: Uh, Well, I went to um, government primary school and government high school and was fortunate to get a scholarship to study law at the ANU. So we grew up in Hornsby, uh, but I got the scholarship to study at the ANU. So I went there and I really enjoyed the subject of taxation. I really enjoyed that. Uh, And so I joined the the tax office. Uh, Also, I did... um, Teaching of tax at university, um, which I really enjoyed. So I was in the tax office for some time, uh, and um, became deputy commissioner um, uh, when I was thirty-one. So I was was quite really enjoyed the tax office. Then I uh, joined the um, when my father passed away um, in the um, I moved to. Sydney, I brought the whole family to Sydney to be a bit closer to the rest of my family, particularly my mother. And um, I then took a role as the Chief Commissioner of State Revenue, which is in the state government, which is sort of the Commissioner for Land Tax, Commissioner for Payroll Tax, Commissioner of Stamp Duty. So it's the Chief Commissioner. After that, um, Janice and Adrian, I um, was appointed as the Auditor General. So I went before the Parliamentary Accounts Committee they, to see whether I was appropriate for the role. Uh, I got that job as the um, Auditor-General and enjoyed that. And that's a seven-year fixed term. So when that finished, I then worked as an infrastructure advisor for Advision, which is a subsidiary of Wally Parsons. Uh, And then I've taken on a few board roles. Um, uh, For example, uh, I'm still the chairman of Bankstown Airport and a few other boards. Um, and then um, when the part-time role of the New South Wales Productivity Commissioner came in, I thought uh, that was a, a role I'd be able to probably help have a bit more of a, have an influence of. As Auditor General, you make recommendations, but you can't necessarily implement them. Uh, as Productivity <coughs> Commissioner, uh, I felt I'd be able to do that even though it was a part-time role. And because of my six years as President of the New South Wales Australian Institute of Company Directors. I formed a, a quite a good bond with the business community and the private sector and the not-for-profits NGOs. And uh, I felt I was able to bring a voice from the private sector and the NGOs uh, to the policy table. And that's why I mm. I took on I took on the role as Productivity Commissioner, and I've uh, really enjoyed it.
3: Going back to the beginning of that, I, I, I love that you just declared that you really liked tax. Um, and, um, you know, some time ago when I used to work a lot with Commonwealth Treasury, it it was amazing to me that there are people who were just deep thinkers about tax. Um, why were you drawn to it? What, what was so interesting about that?
1: Well, I guess from an intellectual point of view, I enjoyed the combination of law and accounting. Mm. Uh, I also enjoyed the concept of building a better Australia. Uh, mm. Taxation is not there for the sake of it. Taxation is the price we pay for a civilised society. And uh, I believe uh, the Lord has blessed us to live in one of the most wonderful countries in the world. And government is necessary to uh, keep that quality of life going. And government has to be funded somehow, uh, user pays uh, often, um, uh, and um, also by taxation.
2: Mm.
0: And so it's also true that that theme of tax has come all the way through to what you've done for the Productivity Commission because a lot of the recommendations you've made go back to those real fundamentals of the tax system and how we structure the the way we pay for society.
1: Look, and it's very interesting you should say that, Adrian, because before I did the white paper, uh, I did... um, as the Productivity Commission, we did a couple of small things here and there. And one of the first things I did was a review of payroll tax administration. And um, what I was pleased with that, I put up 12 recommendations that are accepted by the government. Um, One of them, which you might be able to relate to, is um, with a medium-sized employer who pays payroll tax, the accounting systems don't automatically generate every month the payroll amount because every state is different Uh, and the uh, software firms many of them don't find it um, economical to develop a product for each state and given that there's only um, uh, 50,000 taxpayers or so in New South Wales a lot of it has is not done by the system it had to be done manually so every month the medium-sized businesses would work out what their payroll was for that month, then apply the rate and then do calculations and then lodge it. And so I went and spoke to small business and medium-sized business and they said, look, we we don't mind paying the tax, but the administrative side of it is burdensome. So why are we required every month to do a reconciliation? Why don't we just pay one twelfth of the year before and then do a reconciliation at the end of the year? Uh, And so clearly, if you put your Treasury hat on, you don't like that idea because um, the the government will receive slightly less uh, payroll tax each month from businesses that are growing, because you're only paying a 12th of the year before rather than the actual but uh, I was able to persuade um, and my team was able to persuade people that look the compliance costs of this uh, are greater than than uh, are just then the inconvenience is such that we should allow the payments just to be one twelfth and then at the end of the year, there's a reconciliation done to see, okay, I paid the same as in last year. That my wages were higher or lower, and etc. So, one of my first recommendations was on payroll tax, and in the white paper, payroll tax still has another uh, another um, uh, flag in it because I'm recommending that if the payroll tax be uniform, the legislation and definitions be uniform across all states and territories. Yes, the rate can be different in every state and territory and the threshold can be different. But my recommendation is that the definition of employee uh, and the definition of contractor, the times to make payment, all those things should all be uh, uniform. And so that's one of the, mm. so you're right, um, taxation. And of course, uh, in relation to um, uh, electric vehicles and and stamp duty and things like that, I do uh, cover the pay, the taxation side in the white paper.
0: So there's a there's a theme that it's not just about the tax that's applied, but like how it's applied and the practicality and efficiency.
1: Correct, correct. Of I it? mean, our elected leaders will decide um, the the rates and things like that, and um, whether there's uh, uh, whether there be a um, value added tax or whatever. They're the elected leaders, but. Um, my my role is to put up ideas in relation to, um, to streamline it. And if I can come back to tours, Adrian, one of the reasons why I'm so keen on increasing productivity uh, is that traditionally in Australia, productivity has risen every year. More goods and services were made every year than the year before per person. But about three years before the pandemic came, the rate of productivity growth slowed. And then in 2019, it actually went backwards. So less goods and services were made in 2019 per person than the year before. And so if there's less goods and services made per person, what are you going to do? You're either going to have to get workers to work more hours or you're going to have to ask people to accept downward pressure on real wages because there's less goods, et cetera, to go around. Mm. Or you can look for smarter and different ways to uh, make more goods with the same number of people. Uh, And one of the reasons why the the number of um, the amount of goods and services has fallen per person, Adrian, is because there are, with the demographic changes in New South Wales and Australia, more people are turning 65 and leaving the workforce than those turning 20 and joining the workforce. So the percentage of people working has traditionally increased. In fact, in 1966, the percentage skyrocketed when uh, Commonwealth allowed women to work in the workforce. Right. So, um, but traditionally, every year there's been a higher percentage of people in the workforce than the year before. But in 2018-19, that percentage went backwards. So there were less. And so mm. I believe instead of us all working a couple of extra hours a, a, a week, or all of us accepting a lower wa- real wages. If we can find new and better ways of producing things, then everyone's a winner.
3: Is is the ageing population the main reason for falling productivity? It, it sort of seems to be one of those recurring discussions that you know you would ex- is counterintuitive. Like you would expect with increasing participation by women, technology. You know the fact that Australians do actually work very hard. You know um, you would think that productivity would be uh, growing, what are the factors that have slowed it?
1: Well, let me pull up, let, let me just build on one of your points there, Janice, and then I'll answer it. When you said Australians work pretty hard, you're exactly right. Mm. Uh, Australians, um, my information is that Australians work more unpaid over time than many other, if not most other countries. Mm. But if we drill down to the figures, while the average Australian worker produces the same amount of goods as the average American worker, the average American worker can do it in four days what it takes the australian worker five days so we do produce the same but we work more hours so the americans can can produce in four days um, this i'm generalizing across the whole mm. the whole economy mm-hmm. americans make in four days what australians take five why is that a number of reasons one is energy uh, is, is priced differently another is government regulation uh is, is different now i'm not saying which is right right or wrong uh, mm. the government regulation because I, i'm a I'm a big fan of regulation, um, which is appropriate. For example, food regulations, um, safety regulation. Um, there's other um, reasons why people might say uh, other countries can produce more per hour than Australians. Um, one is in relation. Another one is the planning, etc. The planning rules. Um, some will say it's um, the skills level as well is different in other states um, and in other countries and. Um, And one of my uh, main themes in my productivity paper is in relation to skills. Our white paper, Janice, um, focuses on using our assets better. So uh, I'm not talking about um, um, creating new assets or, 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 or leasing or whatever. What I'm saying is that, We've got wonderful assets across the whole economy. Let's use them better. And that those assets are the physical assets, the infrastructure. Let's use them better. It also includes the intangible assets, the information. Let's use that better. But most importantly, it's the human assets. Uh, let's use those better, the human assets. And so when we look at the um, amount of money per child being spent on education has been increasing uh, quite quite markedly over the last 20 years in real terms, but the results and the, the NAPLAN executive results are going south. Uh, and so we think, well, I wonder if there's ways we can uh, increase uh, the results uh, for the money spent in the education sector, at the TAFE sector, etc.
0: Can I ask about the infrastructure productivity question? Because, not talking infrastructure as it's used and priced here, but actually as it's built, we hear that it's often said that uh, construction, for instance, has lower productivity growth than most other sectors except hunting. But it it strikes me that there might be a measurement problem because a, a kilometre of tunnel built today is quite different to a kilometre of tunnel built 30 years ago. There's higher safety standards, fewer people are injured in its production, there's um, better ventilation, <clears throat> there's more escape routes, etc., cetera, et cetera. There's more technology in the tunnel. So on a on a unit cost, a piece of tunnel costs the same or cost, you know, whatever it costs now relative to then, and productivity hasn't grown. Is that is there a measurement problem, or is it ju- is it true that productivity has is, is lagged that badly in places like construction?
1: Well, it's a very very good point, and it's one we're explore. We're going to explore Adrian. I hear continually. That um, productivity in the construction sector uh, can be improved dramatically. Um, I'm hearing people work extraordinary long hours, and the last few hours they work, it, they're not as productive as they were when they started. Right? Um, mm. I'm hearing uh, that some of the regulations in relation to the specs um, in New South Wales uh, are, are, are slightly um, uh, more. Uh, la- more well, di- different to other states, uh, and so it, um, and I'm also hearing the, the cost of putting in tenders is is, 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 is mm-hmm. difficult. But coming back to your first point in relation to productivity in the construction industry, I hear that anecdotally, uh, and one of my projects uh, in 2022-23 will be to explore that, and I'd gladly tap into some of your uh, research, mm-hmm. uh, etc. Because everybody, not everybody, but lots of people people say that and and there could be that Mm. um when people let a contract they might say we want you to build um um xyz these number of bricks this color this whatever and it might be so finely prescribed that the the person doing it might say well hang on i I don't want to use bricks i want to Mm. use um something else uh and so um they're all the sorts of questions we'll be exploring when we look into this one Mm. Um, and the
0: other question about productivity is I think I'm right in saying through history, you have major disruptions cause um, outsized movements in productivity. So wars, for instance, you get technology advances that increase productivity in other areas. Um, financial crises, you see um, people sharpening their pencils, etc. What, what What will be the effect of the COVID disruption on productivity?
1: Yes, well, I mean... The fact that people have been able to work more flexibly, uh, I think we'll, um, if we can pick the eyes out of the productive side of that and um, leave behind the unproductive side, I think that will be a real game changer to to help us. Um, The the technology, the zooming and the teams and all those sorts of things will help. But you're right. I think um, when you talk about disruptive, um, someone was saying one of the first disruptives was the uh, the NRMA when we, we're talking about cars, etc., there um, they decided to um, be a mechanic for anyone car anyone that's broken down. Uh, so back in 190 whenever when they started, everyone used to have to go to a mechanic and ring them up and bring them and the NRMA said, no, we'll change the model. Um, uh, we'll we'll change it so that people can ring us and we'll get we'll go to them. Uh, and that mm. was a real game changer. And those sorts of things have, I think, continued. And uh, with COVID, the one area, Adrian, and I do, um, I don't think necessarily come to groups with, while tasks uh, and operational things may have been more um, more productive per unit during COVID by Zooms, I'm not convinced that strategic thinking and um, water cooling of discussions uh, have been uh, kept up at the same pace. Um I, I still think a lot of the new initiatives uh, happen mm-hmm. when you're in a room and you talk to somebody uh, and, and you get it forward. And the other one is, I think, um, a, a number of occasions we, we don't necessarily follow the well-being or the mental health of our of our staff, uh, particularly those who um, who don't have a video camera on when they're when they when they're um, doing their te- their work with the teams. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's always helpful to to have the video on so you can see the body language of the the the, the, the well-being of, of staff.
3: Mm. Is, is there likely to be a bit of a compression effect as well next year? Like if, if there was programs or projects that were put off, can we expect to see people just trying to like load up more into next year as a result?
1: Oh, I think, um, and this is only anecdotal, I can't speak on mm. behalf of any, any contractor or any government, but, um, clearly, um, we can. Ju- we've just got to see the retail figures at the moment, um, where people who have been cashed up um, haven't spent money. Mm. They've gone all going out to buy their their computers and their chips and, uh, and even their haircuts and things like that. Mm. Um, I do. I do feel that there could well be uh, Janice, because of this pent up demand, there could well be. Um, and I'm not an expert on prices. Let me say this, but there could well be um, pressures on. On prices, right? Because when um, mm. COVID came in, uh, a number of manufacturers um, uh, reduced their manufacturing, thought we're not going to sell it, et cetera. Um, um, now that it, um, in some countries, America and others uh, that are booming, they're, um, they're requiring a lot of the raw materials and, and the cement and the timber from around the world, uh, and they're prepared to pay a premium. Mm. Um, if that's the case, um, other countries and maybe Australia, we may have to increase the price we are prepared to pay for these inputs. Uh, and if, as you say, there is pent-up demand and a lot of um, private sector and public sector infrastructure is, is to be built uh, and there is limited um, uh, inputs, cement and, and timber or whatever, that may well put uh, up mm. pressure on prices, as will uh, or could the shortage of labour. Uh, the demand for talent, as I've heard, is... Um, is quite high. I mean, in the accounting sphere, for example, um, my understanding is there is a real war for talent, where mm. um, there's just not the not the people there that that there were before. Mm. Yeah, we, we've heard that
0: in infrastructure, Definitely as in well. Infrastructure. Um, yeah, 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 although. There is the closed border issue that we're recording this on the 1st of November and international borders have opened today. I I saw a video earlier on the first Qantas um, quarantine free flight arriving from Los Angeles, um, Mm. which has probably reignited a little bit of discourse around the uh, population growth in big Australia. Um, One of the things that has perhaps masked um, our productivity growth numbers in the past has been. A growing population, driven principally by mm. migration into Australia, how how important do you think migration re-emerging for us from a skills and growth perspective? How important will that Thank be? You.
1: Look, I'm not an expert on that area, and I haven't done any research on it um, specifically, Adrian. I can just give you um, off-the-cuff uh, comments, yes. as it were. Um, when we talk about productivity, there is productivity, as in GDP. Um, or, the, or sorry, there's productivity in global, the amount of goods made, but then there's productivity per person. Mm. So the fact that there are more people doesn't necessarily mean productivity will go up. But if those people uh, have all been trained and educated by another country or whatever, uh, and they're coming and they're, they're going straight into our workforce, um, that, will, mm. that could well uh, increase the productivity Uh, Per person in 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 the economy, but I I'm not in the position to give a comment on that. Mm. If if you looked
0: into it from a skills perspective, though, about those those gaps of people. So what we hear in the infrastructure sector, I'm sure Janice will back me up on this, is we need people with 10 years experience in X, and those people don't exist. Whatever X is, don't exist in Australia, Mm -hmm. and it's going to take us 10 years to get someone with 10 years experience. is, is that, when you look at um, the skills gap piece that you mentioned, is that one of the, the things you just think we'll have to go to to plug those gaps, at least in the short term?
1: Well, our, our recommendations have been more in relation to um, getting more people in, um, from VET, et cetera. Now, I know that doesn't meet your needs of having someone with 10 years' um, qualifications or experience. Um, that's That's an area we haven't we haven't got around to looking at yet. What we did look at was we went through and looked at the shortages in, in where the skills were shorted in VET. For example, air conditioning mechanics, a big shortage, particularly in rural New South Wales, even before the pandemic, right? Mm. Uh, and there's a whole list of industries where over the last 30 years, for 25 years, there's been a real shortage. Uh, and they're the ones we've looked at and said, now, how can we homegrown a few more people, we haven't looked at your, the other side of, um, of the migration, that might be a separate issue, but we've said, look, um, air, and it, the, the shortage of air conditioning mechanics, I'll use that as a good case study. Now, if you're in a country town um, and you've got meat in your butcher shop and your refrigerator breaks down and you've got to wait for a couple of days to get an air conditioning mechanic to fix it, uh, it doesn't help anybody, right? And also the price, the premium you have to pay for that uh, makes it more expensive. And, and so that's why when we say, look, we need more of certain trades, we've did a couple of recommendations. One is to see if we can shorten the period uh, of some of these these trades. Now, obviously, there is a... Um, uh, well, there's a number of different schools of thought. People say, look, um, you really do need to do four years to, to do this. Others say mm-hmm. it can be done differently. One of the things we were able to recommend in the pandemic, which was, was followed up to a large extent uh, by government, Adrian, was where apprentices um, lost their, weren't able to go to work during the pandemic. We recommended that they still be able to continue their uh, theory side at TAFE. Uh, so while they weren't physically on the job, they could still do it, and uh, I'm very pleased that 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 seems to have worked reasonably successful. Uh, now they'll have to catch up on the some of the experience side. Um, we've also made recommendations to try to get more mature um, people into the apprenticeships, and particularly women, uh, to to come in and making it shorter. But to answer your very first question, no, we haven't specifically done any analysis to see. Uh, with these ones where you need ten years' experience, would it be easier to um, uh, uh, bring people from other places?
0: Yeah. And mm. um, on the um, since we're sort of getting into the details of your recommendations in the in the um, white paper process, um, let's just let's kind of unpack some of those because there were a bunch of sort of practical things that were COVID response. I know you spoke mm. about the the. Um, regulations that were relaxed during COVID and do they need to come back in the same way they were constructed before okay. the crisis? Could yeah, you maybe talk yeah, us through some of yeah, those things?
1: Absolutely. Um, during the crisis, um, dozens of regulations were uh, put on abeyance or hold or modified um, electronic signatures, for example, were allowed during the crisis, they weren't before. Uh, deliveries of toilet paper at three o'clock at, at, the, at the evening were allowed. Uh, all sorts of a bit of construction was allowed on the weekend. There were uh, sales of alcohol uh, were allowed by delivery. So there were lots of uh, recommend lots of regulations which were uh, modified for the pandemic. And my recommendation in, in the white paper was that. All of these recommendations should continue for uh, for all of these relaxations should continue for another 12 months unless someone can prove that they should revert back to how they were pre-pandemic. The other school of thought, uh, which I've, I've, I've discussed with people, the other school of thought is they all should automatically go back unless I can prove that they should continue. Uh, and so I'm enjoying the, I'm enjoying the debate uh, on that. Um, but I, firmly- I the third option. <laughs> in. What's the so, third <laughs> option?
0: So I think the third option should be as and when they come back under either of the scenarios you say, that they should be written to be outcome based rather than prescriptive. So for instance, on if, if the problem we're trying to solve with toilet paper deliveries to a woolly is at three in the morning, is that we don't want to wake up the neighbours. Let's say as long as it's below a certain noise level, mm. it can happen at mm. that time. Mm. So that mm. it's about the actual outcome we're trying to solve as opposed to an arbitrary 3am deliveries are noisy mm. because mm. they don't have to be.
1: Mm. Now, look, I, I guess you've hit the nail on the head and that would be the ideal. Um, uh, if we could do that, we could say the outcome we mm. want to achieve is... Um, no noise if you have an electric car for ex- a truck, for example, yeah. you can deliver any time uh, yeah, as long as they're... you uh, yeah, and I think the the, the garbage on was another one where um, uh, um people were um doing it a certain way, and then someone said, well, hang on the the goal is different the, so, so yeah. I think you've hit the nail. on the other thing we've recommended, consistent with what you've just said, um, Adrian, is regulation stewardship. so Regulation uh-huh. generally in um, countries, uh, Australia and other Westminster systems, regulation often have a five-year review period. After five years, there has to be a major review to see if it's still effective. Yeah. We were finding that in many cases that was, and I'm not saying all of them, in many cases that was a sort of a tick and flick thing exercise, mm-hmm. right? I'm um, being a little bit prejugative there, but um, uh, and we're saying there's probably not a lot of um, rigour in that. In many cases, so we've recommended that people who introduce regulations should be the stewards of that. And every year, they should give a report to myself as to how effective that regulation was in achieving the outcomes. Exactly what you're saying, although we, we probably haven't expressed it as well as you have. But we've every year the owner of a regulation comes to me and says, or puts it on the website and says how effective their regulation is rather than waiting in every five years and then rushing through and, and, and doing something.
3: I'd love to be a fly on the wall for when those discussions happen. Um, what are the things that would determine it in a way, I mean, and sort of thinking aloud here, I, I think what you referred to was really interesting. There's a whole raft of regulations that showed that they could flex very easily during the pandemic, you know, so out-of-hour deliveries and things like that. And actually that, that that happened quite easily. People accepted them. You know, what's interesting is I think some of those sorts of behaviour changes may well stick actually post-pandemic. So what are the sort of um, – what are the principles by which we decide what to keep and what to get rid of and go back to the yeah. usual one?
1: Now, I think there's, there are a number of principles, and they probably all depend on the various types of regulations. And um, one of the productivity clearly is one, community yeah. acceptance is another, but mm-hmm. health and safety is one as well. And um, yeah. if we take in relation to um, uh, the delivery of alcohol, there are two schools of thought on that one that um, they're saying, look, uh, in the pandemic, you couldn't get out and about. We didn't want people going out and about. Mm-hmm. And so it was quite, quite appropriate to allow alcohol to be delivered. Mm. Uh, But then they might say... And and it it all has to be evidence-based, Janice. It all has to be evidence-based. If there's Mm -hmm. evidence to show uh, that um, that that could increase um, um, people's reliance on alcohol or could lead to um, uh, abuse of alcohol, uh, then we've got to weigh that up to determine uh, whether um, we can continue it. So the Mm -hmm. principles, I guess they... You know, economic, their financial, the community acceptance, their their safety, uh, etc. Uh, and the beauty, I think, of the way um, the New South Wales government has set up the productivity commission is we can have those debates. People, I can I can debate them on blue in the face with, mm. uh, with uh, uh, heads of government departments, etc. Uh, and evidence based uh, generally to to say um, what should happen. There will be some which people have a different view um, on the evidence um, and they'll bring a different lens to it. Like, um, uh, And they're, they're pre, I'll give it, for example, um, uh, in relation to the, to the shortage of maths teachers,
3: mm-hmm. uh, I
1: had a recommendation up there that um, um, if there are finance executives who are mid-career, finance executive may be in their, in their 40s, mid-career, uh, may wish to give a bit back and become a maths teacher at in high school and public school. Uh, and I've um, made a recommendation that these people probably don't want to give up four years um, of their uh, to study uh, mm. to become a teacher, uh, they've got a mortgage to pay. Uh, maybe we could uh, fast track them, maybe we could assume they know a lot of the maths side when they're in the finance area or they're scientists. Uh, we, you know, um, she may have been working in the fi- in the finance area for a long time, or in, or in science. Maybe we could assume they knew a fair bit, of- and then just concentrate the training on the teaching aspects and things like that. And again, uh, the Department of Education has um, uh, is is working to to accepting those sorts of recommendations as well.
0: And mm. um, so we've spoken about some of the more um, the more agile recommendations that you've made in response to the disruptions. some of these these smaller areas. But there's some pretty big recommendations as well in your white papers, some that would sort of fundamentally change things like the fabric of the state-based tax system. Um, What are those big ones and how difficult are they?
1: Okay. Well, look, um, I guess in relation to the move from uh, stamp duty to land tax, Mm -hmm. that is... um, being dealt with by a different area uh, now that there's a, there's a whole team in the New South Wales treasury looking at that. So we've made those comments, but um, the um, liaison with the, um, with, with community and business and NGO is, is done by a different area. Uh, we've made recommendations in relation to the, um, uh, well, well, and, and some of ours are more longer term, for example, Adrian, say cordon charging, for example, we're, mm. we're saying that in many cases you can't build your way out of congestion, right? You just can't build, keep building more, uh, more roads into the city. Uh, and as we say existing assets should be used better, we're saying that maybe there should be a way of getting more people to travel off-peak on their road assets, train assets, the bus assets. Uh, and, for example, if we look at the road one, um, we haven't turned around and said, well, we tomorrow we should introduce cordon charging. What we've said, because it's been successful in some places around the world and not so successful in others, what we're saying is that um, the Transport for New South Wales should um, continue to implement their behavioural change modelling to try to um, um, nudge people to use... Um, um, roads off peak um, and anyone who's studied um, uh, urban economics knows that um, if if a road's built for 100 people and 99 travel on it, it goes fast but if 101 travel on it, it goes very, very slow uh, even with two people difference a bit like an, at an auction, if there's only one person bidding, uh, you get it pretty cheap uh, if there's two, it's a bit dear so what we're recommending is not jump straight to the uh, considering cordon charging but for the next three years, um, let's have a look at what's happening with the, these other strategies, the nudge strategies to, to spread the uh, usage, and if that doesn't work, then let's explore um, how other countries have used done their cordon charging to see whether there's something appropriate. Yeah. Um, but,
0: so there are things, though, things like um, uh, road user charging and the sort of thin end on developing road user charging that are they may be slow to start, but they're pretty fundamental changes to the composition of the way we collect revenue from road users. But also, at the thicker end of that wedge, there'll be a very substantial proportion of state-based revenue, switchovers from stamp duty to user charges on cars. Um, can you talk us through some of the theory behind those sorts of changes?
1: Sure. Okay, well, let's, let's look at the... Um electric vehicle issue, I think, that's the one that I think the IPA have issued a number of papers on. Um, The recommendation in the white paper was that as there is a move to electric vehicles, there will be less excise collected um, and much of that excise was used, was hypothecated uh, for road building. So if there's not as much excise collected through gasoline, through petrol, um, there's no revenue there, who's going to pay for the road? And one, one, one suggestion is, well, the general taxpayer should pay. Uh, our recommendation is that the people who use the road should pay. Uh, and then if you're um, um, uh, uh, not going to be paying Excise duty for the petrol you use, then you should pay an amount uh, for um, the road user charges. So that that was what they asked. So we we said for the electric cars, electric vehicles, we won't. There should maybe no stamp duty as it's a one-off. It might because the stamp duty may prevent people from buying it. Uh, but let's introduce a very modest um, um, cents per kilometre road user charges. So electric vehicle owners then are able to contribute to the cost of the roads. They, they are paying. They are contributing. Um, and the, the final recommendation from government um, was um, slightly different to that, but it was along the same basis uh, that the um, um, road user charge come in in 2027 or when, when there's a certain level of people uh, doing it. But if So from my point of view, uh, Adrian was someone's got to pay for the road. My preference is, though, if the people using the road have to pay, that might have an effect on their behaviour on how much they use the road. Mm. If they don't pay anything for the road, uh, there's an argument. Um, there's no incentive for people to um, uh, um, re- restrict the use of it.
0: Yeah. And, of course, that's now um, the, the government's ultimate proposal to pass New South Wales Parliament with bypass and support. Um, from both sides for the, the yes. beginning in 2027 and the removal of stamp duty for yes. um, electric vehicles, and alongside some upfront incentives as well. So uh, that's a, that's a tick. You can tick that one off as a yeah. as a long term win from the white paper. Okay.
3: There were you know 89 recommendations and like 60 opportunities. Um, was it hard to 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 put in place so much and then hand it over to government to then implement or, or decide what it would implement? Like, what? what is the ongoing role as the Productivity Commissioner in championing those sure. reforms and the take-up of those?
1: Sure. Um, very good question, Janice. Um, the question is, what is the on- our ongoing role? Mm. Uh, but your first part of the preemptive of the question was the numbers, the sheer scope. Um, mm. I had to choose which ones, which recommendations to, to work on and which not to. Um, you might, people have said, why is there nothing in there about mental health? Uh, because that is a key lever for productivity. And I agree, absolutely agree. Mm. Uh, mental health, though, is was being done by other areas, by the Commonwealth Productivity Commission and others. So um, I focused on the seven main areas where I thought we could make um, state-based uh, and immediate responses. So uh, school mm. skills, planning, uh, infrastructure, etc. Right? So, um, and we've only got a very small team, so it's not as if we could do um, uh, do them all. To answer your question, what is the ongoing role of the Productivity Commission? Well, our first role was to develop the recommendations, um, and then the second is to work with agencies to see which ones can be progressed. And I recognise mm. that some of them may never be, may not be progressed. How did we come up with the 60? Well, we used the traditional Westminster system of policy development. We did a discussion paper first, which just put out a whole lots of questions. We were saying, mm. why is it that planning in New South Wales takes longer than in other states? Why is it that the results um, uh, of, of, the, of the NAP NAPLAN uh, is, uh, is going south? We put all those questions in a discussion paper, got lots and lots of feedback and developed a green paper. Now, the Green Paper had a number of recommendations, about 50, um, which were other people's recommendations, not mine. They were other people's recommendations. So that was the Green Paper, and we liaised heavily with that. In fact, we had over 3 million people aware of that or view that uh, on the web, which is, for a government publication, 3 million uh, is is quite large. Um, I'm not saying they all opened it. (laughs) <laughs> read it <laughs> yeah. at least they're were, they, they were aware of yeah and so we got lots and lots of feedback and that helped us hone in which of the areas we should look at uh from the green paper and then we developed the white paper which are my 60 recommendations which i believe government should go forward with and we've had positive responses for um about half of them um mm. and already about 20 have been started to be implemented, uh, but there are a number in there um, which um, may or may not go further. Small modular reactors, for example. I was going
3: to um, ask about that one. <laughs>
1: may, may, uh, that one may take a uh, – I'm not sure. Whether that, uh, anyway, well, yes.
3: I mean, there are certainly a couple in there that, that people will be a bit surprised about. Yeah, and like nuclear electricity generation is probably one, and the flexible uses of drones I thought was quite interesting as well. well what, yeah. like, so what sort of, uh, what sort of inquiry process sort of led you to that, those sorts of areas of, of recommendation?
1: Great. Well, uh, in relation to the small modular reactors, mm. our basic um, thesis there is that we should be technologically neutral as mm. to how Uh, we make decisions. So um, the decision not to have um, small modular or not to use nuclear uh, was made uh, over 20 years ago. Uh, The technology was at a certain stage back then. It may or may not have uh, improved. Um, It may be safer. Um, It may be more efficient. It it may be cheaper. Um, We know in America, Bill Gates and others are um, doing a lot of work on the small modular reactors, right? Uh, Our view is that... If um, small modular reactors become a norm uh, around the world, um, we should be in a position where someone could be able to put up a business case in Australia to say, I would like to uh, build a small modular reactor for this particular rural town or or whatever. But they still then have to show the safety and the environmental issues around all of that on a case-by-case basis. So we're basically not saying we should build these things tomorrow. We're just Mm. saying it should be technology neutral to decide what should happen. In relation to drones, that's been a very interesting one, Janice. Um, Our initial research in both the discussion paper and the Green Paper showed that farmers in particular on large farms... Would benefit quite a lot by having a drone to do stock evaluations, dam levels, weed control, uh, etc. And so we put that in as a recommendation, um, subject to CASA and all those sorts of regulations. And of course, there's a Commonwealth element. Uh, And to a large extent, we've had very positive responses, but there have been a number of areas where people have expressed concerns. Uh, about that they've said um, look and basically what the recommendation is at the moment um, a farmer can use um, a drone if it's within her line of sight if she can see the drone it can be used but if it goes over the hill um, you can't use it now we saw all the figures on quad bike accidents when they're going out etc so some are saying well, what we need to do is better training on quad bikes Uh, Or what we need is this rather than having the drones because of the concern that the drone, uh, uh, the privacy concerns for a start, and also concerns that the drones may interfere with the aeronautical um, uh, equipment. Mm -hmm. So we're still we're still working on that one.
0: Um, Sorry, go on, Janice. No, you go. (laughs) Um, I'm going to ask you to cast your mind back over the whole career so far. Peter Um, and what's the prickliest problem you've had to deal with across the various roles like the toughest one
1: the toughest one is uh, people management Uh, either um, uh, um, if I if I feel I've let somebody down that is the hardest thing for me Um, whether it be a stakeholder whether it be a um, a someone in a remote town who we, we wanted to do a review of and we weren't able to assist. Um, so dealing with, with stakeholders, I find increasingly, though, Adrian, um, at the start of my career, policy could be implemented if there were nine winners, nine short-term winners and one short-term loser, as long as there were 10 long-term winners out of 10. Mm. Uh, increasingly w- there's, a, there's more pressure from the community on everyone to be a winner in the short term and the long term and mm. that um, that does make the um, marketing and the engagement and the, and the selling of reform uh, a little bit more difficult. We have to let people focus on the long term uh, and say, look, it may well be uh, in the short term um. Uh, it may be inconvenient, etc. Um, we have a good example is my recommendation on mutual recognition, where I am suggesting that um, uh, for particular trades, um, if someone is qualified as in that trade uh, in Queensland or Victoria, uh, they should be able to practice that trade in New South Wales and the reverse. Now, mm-hmm. people come to me and say, "Well, look." Um, we're going to lose jobs, you know, like Mm. um, if we're going to let these people from um, um, Victoria come in and take all our jobs, we're we're in big trouble. Uh, Then we show figures that show, look, there's a shortage in many of these trades Uh, Mm. uh, and the builders are waiting for X weeks to get somebody. Uh, If they could quickly get someone from Victoria, that would help. But in the short term then, Adrian, there are losers in that, even though, it grows the whole industry, et cetera. So uh, I guess from my point of view, it's the getting people on site. And that's why I, I enjoyed the three-stage process with our policy development of showing people there's a problem. Now, there's a problem yeah. in the planning system because it takes uh, 200 days on average for an approval in New South Wales, which takes 103 days uh, in uh, in Queensland. There's a problem there. Right? so you show the problem, and then when you come up with the solutions, people may not like them, but if they're mm-hmm. aware of the problem, they're more inclined to then maybe finesse your solution and come up with a better one.
3: Is that a polite way, though, of saying that we've lost the appetite for reform, that we're too afraid of losers in any... Because things like tax reform or housing reform, it's very rarely a situation where you can please everybody. How yeah. how do you manage for that
1: in yeah, that situation? Yeah, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't use that that expression about mm. the two or fra- i I'd like to say we want to please everybody.
3: Mm.
1: We want to meet the needs of all stakeholders in the short term and the long term. Um, the um, And it's up to people like myself to be able to prosecute the case, mm. to show people that in the long term we're all better off. Um, and it's a bit like saying to... A student, you, you'd be better off if you went to TAFE rather than worked as a labourer. And they might turn around and say, I can get paid more as a labourer than as an apprentice. Mm. Uh, right? It's up to us uh, for the benefit of society to say, look, um, in the long run, uh, if you do a trade, you could end up owning your own business.
0: Mm. Mm. Um- I'm going to ask you to upset some more stakeholders now, because we um, we we've we've asked every one of our guests the same question, um, which is what's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why. So someone's going to be disappointed here by your answer; it's inevitable.
1: What's what's your favourite sort of what?
0: What's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why?
1: Well, look, you can talk from a productivity point. Of view. I mean, human infrastructure or physical infrastructure?
0: Well, you get to decide. It's an open question. In, okay, little, bot, infrastructure.
1: Yeah, well, Your people. definition. People.
0: People. Okay. That's the first time we've had humans you mentioned as a favorite sort of infrastructure.
1: Okay. If I had to say um, a physical infrastructure, mm. um, I guess from a, um, a productivity point of view, you would have to talk about technology, mm. um, but from a a personal technical point of view, it's the ferry. I love getting the ferry to work. I
0: think it's the first time we've had the ferry as well. Talk to you about the technology piece, though. So, because that's a bit of a... Infrastructure wouldn't really, until the last few years, have been seen as a very technology-heavy area. You know, it's quite sort of... Big things made of steel and concrete.
1: Well, I think... um, technology and infrastructure go hand in hand. I mean, not just the way the buildings are all done now with the, um, you don't use a ruler, you use a um, a laser and all that sort of stuff, right? So, And and that goes without saying. But um, I think also technology can get us to use infrastructure better. We look at, um, uh, you've only got to look at TripAdvisor and and Airbnb and all those sorts of things. We can use our uh, private sector accommodation better by people being aware of it. Um, you look at the park and ride, people can work out where the parking, the, which the government's implementing, uh, where the parking spaces are. Instead of driving around uh, the suburb for, for half an hour looking for a spot, uh, they can look it up. So um, I think uh, the technology there um, it, is um, we can use our, exist. A, we can build it better using technology, mm. and B, we can use it. Better. I mean, and you've only got to look at the, uh, the Opal card, right? So we can now work out um, um, how many people are travelling at what time, right? Um, in the past, you buy your ticket. I mean, it was – and 10 years ago, we were still buying paper tickets, right? So nobody would know – the only way reason you'd know what time they bought – what time they were travelling was if they paid off-peak price, um, or not, if they bought it before seven, right? Whereas now it's all automatic. You can tell when they travel uh, or not. I think there's privacy rules, but you can tell the volumes uh, and then you can determine um, how we can move the volumes, which lines are used the most uh, and etc. on the trains and, and also in relation to the buses. So I think, um, the, the, and also data and information. I mean, we did a recommendation. Now, this is not strictly infrastructure, but... Um, uh, on uh, on funerals, funerals, right? We said, look, um, a lot of people, a lot of a lot of information is is asymmetrical. One side knows more than the other. Mm. Uh, and what one of the goals of productivity and microeconomic reform is that the asymmetrical of the information be smooth, so that both sides have got more information, right? And if we look at a funeral, if if um, someone an elderly partner dies and the other partner goes into the funeral shop and, and wants to buy uh, a, a funeral service, they're often upset and distressed and they end up sometimes buying something which is probably not more expensive than what, probably what they would have hoped for. Uh, this could happen. And our recommendation was um, that um, all funeral um, providers put on the web their cheapest, um, their cheapest service. Uh, and so that way, some of the vulnerable people, when they mm. go in, uh, are pre-warned. They can say, "I just want that," uh, and that's it. Mm. And that's so. Information is not technically infrastructure. It's not technically technology, but but it's yeah. Yeah, technology helps us get information out to people. Mm. I'm um,
0: I'm interested, but you spoke about things like the um, like an allocation problem with parking. And, um, but you also spoke earlier about pricing uh, uh, as a mechanism. I know the two don't have to work independently, but do you think that the the increasing availability of information diminishes the case for pricing stuff
1: Oh that's effectively? Annoying. Is no, there that's a annoying. tension there? Look, I'm not sure if it's a tension or if it's complementary. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if, if there is more information, then goods can be used more effectively. Uh, and I think from what you're saying, and, and you're making a very strong case for it, if they're used more effectively, then there could be downward pressure on prices. Mm. Um, so um, instead of having only 60% of the parking spots used at a premium price, if they're all used, uh, then the average price could be lower. I haven't haven't mm. explored that in detail, but it's a, it's a very um, worthwhile concept to, to take further.
0: I mean, I shouldn't, I, I don't want to, anybody listening to this to think that I'm not pro pricing because oh, like, that's kind of my, my, that's one of my what core did. beliefs is that we, <laughs> yeah. should, we should price <laughs> infrastructure effectively. But yeah. it, so it, it, I, I guess what strikes me is a lot of the pricing on infrastructure is, mm. is point in time or to some extent arbitrary. And if you, had, if you had greater information, you could price more effectively and potentially lower prices for all rather than having sort of exclusion pricing or rationing, which is mm. often the approach now.
1: Yeah, look, um, I think that's definitely worth exploring. What you're saying makes a lot of sense. I'd have to delve deeper into it. Um, Mm. When you talk about pricing, I'll I'll give you a good example. Um, I did a review of infrastructure contributions uh, Mm. a a while ago, right? And up until that time, connections from Sydney Water to a a new development were not paid for by the developer, were paid Mm. for by Sydney Water. And I looked at that and I said, well, why should the people on the other side of Sydney be paying for a connection? Uh, surely the, the the eventual owners of this um, development should pay for the connection. And others would say, no, no, Sydney Water should pay. It's not fair for the developer to pay. Then when I went and spoke to numbers of people involved, I could say almost unilaterally everybody wanted the developer to pay, even the developer. And, and I said, why is that? And they said, look, perception-wide. Now, truth is different to perception. But mm. perception-wide, if we're getting something for free and someone has to provide that to us for free, they may not give it the, most, the highest priority. They, they may, um, and they're not saying, I'm not saying this occurred, but there was a perception mm. that from some of the um, people who wanted a connection that if, if it was, they were a, a customer, they might, uh, and they were prepared to pay five, a couple of thousand dollars for the actual cost of connecting the water. Uh, they might uh, might get it done quicker, and if it's done quicker, then they could release the property and sell the property, and, and everyone would be better off. So um, pricing in that case, um, many hmm. people, not everyone, accepted it. Of course, uh, Adrian. Getting back to my hmm. point, Janice of nine and one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: But it's yeah. good it, it, in a situation where it gives certainty around the timing of development, good. you can good. see the, the benefit of that.
0: Yeah. We don't, you know, I mean, that's the underpinning principle, isn't it, for things like user pays, is when you when you when you, the 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 user is the beneficiary and the beneficiary pays, there's, a, there's an elegance to that. Hmm. But there's also a um there's sort of a contract that's formed where you can expect a certain level of service because you paid for a certain level of service that's as nice. opposed to driving on a road with potholes because the the connection between those who use and benefit yes. those who pay and those who provide is not clear yeah. Yeah. Um, look, it's been um, it's been a, uh, an enormously interesting chat um I'm not sure it was terribly infrastructure for the most part but, <laughs> but it will be interesting, <laughs> interesting to our listeners. <laughs> yeah um, but it, it was uh, broad and far-ranging and um, the reflection on um, uh, some incredible things you've done over your career so Peter thank you very much for joining us on inside infrastructure
1: thank you very much Adrian and thank you uh, PWc as well thanks Peter
0: that's it for today please make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Thanks also go to Linda Beershon, Fabio Menezes, Maddie Bartlett, Brendan Pearce, and Michael Player.